Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Imagine it took you much of the day just to get the water you need to drink and keep somewhat clean. A billion people don't have to imagine. That's the way they live now, and some say that gives the U.S. a great diplomatic opportunity. If the United States had a Marshall Plan for water supply and said, we're going to get water to a billion people around the world, you could imagine the goodwill that the United States would have. Also, a steer usually winds up as steak and hamburger, but not if he belongs to writer John Katz and his name is Elvis. He is sweet. How can I tell you? I never thought I would know a steer. I never thought I would love a steer. He comes up and uh, puts his head on my shoulder. He likes to kiss me. Uh, He eats my hat. He can be a little drooly. You have not been kissed until you have been kissed by Elvis. Tales of Bedlam Farm and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. You probably have a favorite national park or two. Hopefully you took some pictures the last time you were there to help you remember what you saw, because experts are now telling us that many of our national parks not only provide habitat for endangered species, but themselves are endangered by global warming. The latest report comes from the National Parks Conservation Association. Mark Wensler is the director of clean air programs for the association. I spoke with him about a number of national parks, starting with the Everglades in Florida. There, billions of dollars have been dedicated to restoration, so I asked if that money will be wasted with rising sea levels. If you have to single out one park that's most at risk, it's got to be the Everglades because, in fact, close to a third of southern Florida could be underwater by the end of the century, and that would completely obliterate that ecosystem. I would say that it's not that the investments we're making now are not worth it because they are shoring up the ecosystem, and they're going to help it withstand that sea level rise to a greater extent than it could have before. But certainly there's a tremendous amount of of investment that's going to go to waste. So we'll have some parks that... Looks like they're going to get too much salt water. Uh, there are other parks that I imagine will have drought and maybe they'll have increased fire hazards. Um, what are the risks that global warming poses for our parks in the southwest? I'm thinking of the Saguaro National Park there in Arizona or Joshua Tree. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think that those parks, as hot as they are already, are, are going to suffer from additional heat, but they will because the Saguaro have adapted to live within a certain climate range, and, and other species are kept out by that range. And as that range changes, um, more species like invasive grasses will be able to move in. We see that happening now. And you really don't have anything in those ecosystems right now that burns. And in fact, there have been very few fires in those ecosystems. But as these invasive grasses move in, dry out, you're going to see increasing amounts of wildfires that put the saguaro at risk. And the saguaro, of course, are those large cactuses that look like people standing with their arms and everything. Exactly. Anybody who watched, you know, Bugs Bunny in the 60s, you know, probably seen a roadrunner, seen a lot of saguaro cactus. And what about Joshua Tree? Joshua Tree is interesting. You know, people often talk about we'll have to rename Glacier National Park because there won't be any glaciers. But, you know, Joshua Tree uh, we may have to rename as well because the trees are disappearing or are expected to disappear from the park by the end of the century. Those trees need... A certain amount of cold weather to reproduce. I think uh, it's about one or two nights below freezing 
uh, each year that help them release their seeds and, and reproduce. And that's not going to be happening. They won't be getting down to those temperatures. Those trees won't be able to reproduce. Again, you'll have invasive grasses moving in to replace them. And certainly they'll exist to a lesser extent outside the park. But what what's predicted is that within the boundaries of that Joshua Tree National Park, we may not have any Joshua trees. So as these habitats change, um, what concerns do you have for plants and animals? Um, will they migrate uh, north to uh, Canada or, or, or go to a higher elevation, I would assume? You know, an interesting story is, is the grizzly bear at Yellowstone. You know, um, people think of grizzly bear and think, well, what do they eat? Well, they, you know, eat hikers or, you know, what do they eat? Bear, moose, you know, big things. But one of the most important food sources for grizzlies um, are pine nuts. And what's happening is that the, the white park pine beetle is becoming more prevalent as warmer temperatures take over the park. And they're killing those trees. And this is sort of unintended consequences where, you know, something happens and it changes something else. And all of a sudden the grizzlies don't have the food they need. And they'll need to move northward to find, you know, those trees that have those pine nuts. What are the other parks where you're particularly concerned about invasive species and and or pests? Well, you know, we look at a park like Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, North Carolina, and that park has already been very heavily impacted by invasive species like the adelgid, which have almost wiped out the hemlock trees. Climate change and warming temperatures are, are just going to make those kinds of pests thrive, and so it looks like we won't, won't be able to beat out the clock and save those trees, that the, the adelgids are going to take off, they're going to continue to decimate those forests. Now, of course, when people think of global warming and national parks, um, what comes to mind almost immediately is ice, melting ice. How bad is the situation when it comes to um, our parks that have uh, a fair amount of ice and, and snow in them? Well, that's really bad. That, that's probably some of the most dramatic changes that you can see today. You know, people sometimes ask me, well, where can I go see climate change? And one place you definitely can see it is at Glacier National Park, because you can go and see how extensive the glaciers were and how they've been reduced to almost nothing today. In fact, I think we've only got a few more decades before they're gone completely. Now, Glacier, of course, is at risk. What are the other, other ones that come to mind? We know Glacier uh, is, is the namesake park for glaciers, but there are actually more glaciers in places like the North Cascades in Washington State. You know, and, and that really affects the economies that have grown up around those parks. You know, mountaineering and winter sports and skiing are tremendously important uh, activities that people like to go to those parks and do. And those glaciers are going to go away, and you know, they're not going to come back. This is all very gloomy here. What can we do specifically to help the parks? Well, the parks are doing an interesting thing right now. The National Park Service, just about a year or two ago, began a, a small program called Climate Friendly Parks. So they're doing things like investing in, in clean transportation systems and putting solar panels on visitor centers. And not just doing that for their own sake, but also educating the public about what they can do at home. And it's a program that is growing. I think Glacier in Montana was one of, one of the first, again, given what's at stake for that park. Zion down in Utah has some really innovative public transportation systems. Zion's also got, uh, you know, being in the desert southwest, uh, extensive use of solar panels, which is really interesting. Glacier Bay uh, is also part of the Climate Friendly Parks program. And, you know, one of the big pollution sources up there are cruise ships. And so Glacier Bay is working with the cruise industry to try to figure out how they can get them to reduce their emissions and protect the park. I guess if there's any silver lining in the story, it's that it's not too late to avoid some of the worst problems. And that's why we're trying to raise attention to this issue now. If we want to save these special places that tell the story of our nation, that are our shared 
natural history. We've got to act now. Mark Wensler is director of the Clean Air Program for the National Parks Conservation Association and producer of their report, Unnatural Disaster, Global Warming, and Our National Parks. Thanks so much, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you. To learn more about our national parks and climate change, go to our website, LOE.org. You can also get the inside scoop from Mark Wenzler about his favorite wild places, including some that most people don't know about. This land was made for you and me. The Los Angeles basin tends to trap air. And the California sun can turn exhaust and other emissions from the activities of 16 million people into choking clouds of smog. So air officials have cracked down on cars, trucks, tugboats, cranes, and even trains. And now Southern California clean air advocates are leading efforts to get national regulations to cap pollution from ocean-going freighters. They're demanding that the federal government take action now rather than wait for international rules. Living Honors Ingrid Lobet reports from Los Angeles. When both United States senators and two California congresswomen introduced legislation to clean up cargo ship engines recently, poor neighborhoods in California cheered. The issue of trade-related pollution was finally being heard at the federal level. When several had the chance to speak to Senator Barbara Boxer at an August recess field hearing, the public packed the room. Roy Wilson, a county official in badly polluted Riverside County, made a point deeply felt here that it's unacceptable for a region that cracks down on drivers, on factories, on paints and dry cleaners to have a major polluter sitting untouched in its ports. It is shocking to consider that just upwind of our region, maritime vessels operate enormous engines, some of them three stories high, without any emission controls to speak of. These vessels also burn some of the dirtiest fuel in the world, literally the bottom of the barrel left after the refining process. This heavy ship fuel often contains hundreds of times more sulfur than what's now allowed in regular diesel fuel. California recently forced ships to switch to clean fuel as they enter port and is being sued for it. The EPA says it's working through proper international channels, specifically the International Maritime Organization, toward the same end. Nearly everyone, including the shipping industry, says such international rules are the best way to address the issue, but people here say the international rules are taking too long and the federal government needs to fill the gap. Ed Aval, an expert in air pollution health effects at the University of Southern California, says lung damage is occurring now. Our studies have shown that children that grow up in more polluted areas have slower growing lungs. And that after years of losing a percent or two of lung growth, children in more polluted communities have higher rates of clinically significant low lung function and a decreased ability to move air through their lungs just because of the air that they breathe. And these observations are important because we know that low lung function is a predictor of respiratory disease later in life and even of early death. Emergency room physician John Miller says he's calculated Southern California pays $1.4 billion a year in health care costs related to pollution from the ports of L.A. Long Beach. Scientists have compared the level of our risk here to that of passive smoking. When you apply that risk to millions of people, the results are bad. But it's the deaths and near misses that he says really get him. Recently, on a routine busy night in the ER, we got a sudden call from the paramedics. 
They were bringing in a 14-year-old boy in full cardiopulmonary arrest due to an asthma attack. We got as prepared as we could in 120 seconds, and soon we were in the hand-to-hand -hand struggle with death and destruction that we do fight. This child survived despite the severity of his condition, but in many cases the person does not survive. Dr. Miller also told of a woman who came in believing she was having a heart attack but died not long after of lung cancer. In my opinion, she died from air pollution. The ports, with their massive trade with Asia, are the L.A. Basin's largest single polluters, and container cargo is supposed to double or even triple again by 2025. The city of Long Beach is also home to the port complex. Bob Foster is mayor of Long Beach. We're subsidizing inexpensive goods movement with the health of our citizens, and that's just simply intolerable. We can no longer afford to have kids in Long Beach contract asthma so someone in Kansas can get a cheaper television set. Bills to dramatically reduce the sulfur content of marine fuels have been introduced in the House and the Senate, but it could be tough for lawmakers to irritate the ports, who've traditionally been important sources of income and employment in coastal cities. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Coming up, a day in the life of using water. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A hundred years ago, Libby, Montana was like so many other small towns in the American West. Its population grew to about 2,700 as people came to work the timber and mining industries. And it looked like Libby had a bright future as it began mining what was branded as zonalite, a form of vermiculite that would be used as home insulation and fertilizer around the world. But as the years wore on, the mining company realized that its product was laced with tremolite, a type of asbestos that is particularly hazardous to health. And instead of warning its workforce of the dangers, it kept on mining. The story of Libby, Montana, is the subject of a documentary film on the POV series on PBS, which airs August 28th. Drury Gunkar and Doug Hawes Davis co-directed the film. I asked Drew to tell me what happens to people who are exposed to this mineral. What happens is this tremolite uh, gets stirred up in the air uh, during mining or in any kind of agitation, and people breathe it in. And over time, it starts to scar the lungs and turns into a disease called asbestosis. What happens is the lungs fill up with water, essentially, and they, they suffocate over time. So the other disease associated with it, two diseases, one is lung cancer, and the other one is called mesothelioma, which is a very rare cancer of the outer lining of the lungs. I'd like to play some sound from your documentary now from an interview with a man named Les Scramstad, who, who worked in the vermiculite mine. It was his first day on the job, and he was excited about the opportunity, he told you. I had this respirator on, and in about 15 minutes, I couldn't breathe. So I pulled this respirator off, and it was just plugged solid. I was just covered with this dust everywhere. You couldn't get it off of me, really. It just stuck, you know, and so I took it home with me. And I'd walk in the house, you know, and my oldest daughter and my oldest son, they'd grab me by the legs, you know, because they was happy to see me. and. Christ, I was covered with this stuff, you know. 
It wasn't that I was being sloppy. It was just that I couldn't get it off. So Les Scramstead takes his job at the at the plant, and uh, what happens to him and his health? Well, over time, he started to develop a cough and had trouble breathing. And he went to the hospital and was told that he had asbestosis and that he had just a few years to live. So uh, we went out and got in the car and started for home, and I suppose, I guess we got about halfway home, probably. And I said to Narita, I said, Jesus, you know what? She said, what? And I said, I just got a death sentence. What did he do uh, about the fact that he had this disease from working at the mine? Well, Les was a very uh, soft-spoken man, and I think he probably found it difficult to speak out about his ailment. And Les was told by many that he was a troublemaker, that he was, you know, a reactionary and uh, a radical. All those terms were used to describe anyone who came out and said, you know, we have a problem in this town. Um, People are getting sick. So did he remain ostracized for the rest of his life? Well, no, he didn't. Les continued over the years to speak out publicly along with a handful of other people. And as the numbers of people being diagnosed with asbestosis in that town grew, the call for action also grew. Um, Les passed away in January of this year, 2007. And it was very heartening to go to his funeral and see the hundreds of people who came literally blizzard conditions to pay their respects. This is a town of, what, about 2,700 people. And of this town, do I have this correct? More than 200 have died from lung disease, and another 1,200 have some form of lung disease? Yeah, you know, it's hard to get around those numbers. There's now a a clinic set up in Libby called the Center for Asbestos-Related Disease, and they report that they have something on the order of 1,400 patients with some type of lung abnormality associated with asbestos exposure. And they estimate that around 270 people have died from asbestos-related disease. W.R. Grace was the company that was doing the mining in Libby, Montana. Uh, Can you tell me a bit about this company? Well, W.R. Grace has been around for a long time. They are a huge multinational corporation. You know, W.R. Grace um, is one of the companies that was involved in the Warburg, Massachusetts lawsuits, which ended up in the book and the film, A Civil Action. So they're not unknown to be in issues associated with um, toxic material. And in the case of Libby, the Janssen coordinator for the EPA, Paul Perinard, described Grace as being by far the most difficult corporation to work with. And that has been shown to be the case in Libby, where many people feel that they were betrayed by this company. What will happen and what has happened to W.R. Grace and its former employees? Well, in 2001, W.R. Grace filed for bankruptcy and they're still in bankruptcy. The courts are still trying to figure out what's happening in Libby, what the liability in Libby will be for cleanup, for human health. And uh, as far as their financial situation, they're far from out of business. Their uh, 2006 annual report reported sales of over $2.8 billion with a net income of over $18 million. So they are still doing quite well in business and uh, someday will probably emerge from bankruptcy relatively unscathed. 
What about criminal sanctions? Executives uh, were indicted, as I understand it, at some point. Uh, What's happened to those cases? Yeah, it's been ongoing for a couple of years now, but in February of 2005, seven um, executives and managers from WR Grace were indicted on federal criminal charges for knowingly endangering the residents of Libby and concealing information about the health effects of its mining operations. And that case is due to come up in September of 2007, but it's far from clear that any of these charges will stick. So what's the prospect of Libby ever getting all this stuff cleaned up? Well, that's the question. And early in 2007, that's exactly what EPA is doing. They're doing a huge study to determine how clean the town needs to be in order to significantly reduce the risk of asbestos exposure. This uh, asbestos-laced vermiculite was shipped all over the country to be used as insulation. How many homes do you think it's in today? Well, that's uh, the the big question. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that somewhere around 35 million homes and buildings have some level of zonalite insulation from Libby. The, the question now is, is it safe to have zonalite insulation in your home if it's sealed up? And uh, that's a question that the EPA has really failed to answer. Um, one of the reasons that Libby, for instance, was never declared a public health emergency, because if they did that, um, they would have had to have taken out all the insulation from all the homes in Libby. But of course, the problem with that is if they do that, they'd have to explain to the American public why they aren't um, you know, addressing uh, zonal and insulation in all of these millions and millions of homes um, throughout the United States. Drew Gunkar and his partner Doug Hawes Davis produced the documentary film Libby Montana for the Point of View series on PBS. That airs August 28th. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Scientists, government officials, and activists from 130 countries just wrapped up World Water Week in Stockholm, an effort to bring more attention and resources to what they call a global water crisis. More than a billion people around the world do not have safe drinking water. Another two and a half billion lack basic sanitation. Living on Earth decided to take a look at how we use water here and in another part of the world. So we asked our Washington correspondent Jeff Young to keep a diary of his water use for a day. And we asked a woman in a small village in southern India to do the same. The result is this day in the life measured out in water. So this is how the day starts for me. Got to get some coffee. Jumpstart my morning. Broken teeth. About half a gallon. So about eight minutes in the shower, three gallons for every flush of the toilet, a pint of water in the coffee. I'm already up to 23 gallons of water, and my day's just getting started. Well, the day starts quite differently, 10 time zones away in the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. That's where Ms. Marudambal lives. I'm 
I live in Sukumpati village in the state of Tamil Nadu with my husband and two children. First thing in the morning, when we go to the bathroom, we need water for that, to clean up. We have no bathroom. We must go to the field to defecate. I get up at 5 to get water for cooking and cleaning. Next, I splash water around the entrance to the house to keep down the dust. I really need two bowls of water for that, but I don't have enough, so I use only one. There is a water tank about half a mile away. We fill our pots with water and carry them back. But we have to gather all the water before dark. There's no lighting, and there are poisonous snakes and stinging insects along the path. When the electricity is out, the water tank can't be filled. Sometimes it will be four days with no water in the tank. When that happens, I have to ride my bicycle about a mile to another water source. This hand pump water is like seawater, but we have no other choice. So one of the first things I see when I walk into the office building here at the Capitol is this vending machine selling bottled water. So here's a question. If I'm willing to plunk down a buck 25 for what is, let's face it, repackaged tap water, well, how much of my tax money should I be willing to spend to help out people like Mrs. Marudenball around the world? That's a question that some people here on Capitol Hill are starting to ask. We are facing a global crisis with lack of sanitation and safe drinking water when we are a country that spends uh, upwards of $20 billion a year on bottled water. That's Oregon Democratic Representative Earl Blumenauer. The number he uses is at the high end of estimates of water sales. Industry figures point to about $15 billion a year retail. But Blumenauer's point is this. $15 billion for bottled water is 250 times what the government put toward global water development. Blumenauer's pushing for more money for the Safe Water for the Poor Act. Congress passed that law two years ago, but failed to provide much funding. It is a drop in the bucket. We ended up last year with something like $60 million for this global need and less than $10 million for all of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it's going to require hundreds of millions of dollars added to this effort on an annual basis. But this is within our capacity. The Water for the Poor Act directs the State Department to make water and sanitation development part of U.S. foreign policy. Gary White at the nonprofit group Water Partners International says the money still doesn't flow to those most in need. You know, our foreign policy isn't really focused right now on helping lift people out of poverty as much as it is on other, other goals. White says water funding is siphoned away to expensive projects in Afghanistan, Iraq, and around the Middle East, areas where the U.S. wants to counter terrorism. White argues for a policy that also emphasizes getting water to the neediest. 
if the United States had a Marshall Plan for water supply and said, we're going to get water to a billion people around the world, and that became a centerpiece of our foreign policy, you could imagine the goodwill that the United States would have. And I think that it would be hard to imagine a world that would have a critical mass of people wanting to attack us if we had taken on such a great goal for humanity. So back home for a few chores, uh, according to the owner's manual, the dishwasher uses seven gallons per wash cycle. These basils look thirsty. Watering the plants, about another six gallons. Bath time for baby. Not a lot of water used, but a moment to think about water quality instead of the quantities. Um, DC's water did have some lead in it for a while. We used a filter, still use a filter, that takes care of that. But we don't give a second thought as to whether contact with the water is going to make our baby sick. That's a real luxury elsewhere around the world. In fact, uh, the United Nations figures tell us that Diseases caused by the exposure to dirty water is the second leading cause of childhood death around the world. 4,900 children will die today as a result of being exposed to dirty water. We took water samples from two wells and the hand pump we use. We took the water to the local officials. After tasting it, they said the water is not fit to drink. They wondered how anyone drinking it could survive. For washing clothes, I need 10 pots of water if I need the clothes to be very clean. The farmers won't allow us to wash or to clean clothes at the water well. They think the soap will pollute the water they need for crops. So we have to carry the water home for washing clothes. We need to bathe every day. I need three pots of water for each person. That's a total of 12 pots of water for bathing alone. I thought it'd be a fitting way to wrap up this day with a little evening stroll around some of the fountains here on the Capitol grounds. So how do we compare at the end of the day, Ms. Marudambal and I? Well, there was a bit of guesswork involved here, i got to admit, but I used about 95 gallons of water. The average American uses somewhere between 100 and 160 gallons a day, depending on uh, what activities you include. Mrs. Marudambal's family used a little under 30 gallons of water per person. But, you know, what struck me about her was not so much the amount of water used, but the time and energy spent getting it. Imagine the other things she could be doing with her time and energy. You know, we take this resource so much for granted. Water, it's, it's almost invisible to us. And the people around the world who go without water, yeah, they're pretty much invisible to us, too. It's kind of like water itself. You see through it until the light catches it just right, and then you see yourself reflected in it. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
Thanks to Shobila Koligander, the Tamil Sangam, Global Water Challenge, and Water Partners International for their help in translating our water diary from India. Just ahead, what's in a name? A lot when there's talk about updating the taxonomy of all living things great and small, the Linnaean system. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, the dog days of summer for Elvis, Rumsfield, and other animals at Bedlam Farm. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Amy Fish. The Anglican Church has vowed to reduce its carbon footprint by 60% in the next half century. According to the Church of England, their creation care program is the Green Gospel. Anglican leaders want to equip old churches with energy-efficient lights, recycling bins, and compost heaps. They're urging worshipers to carpool to Sunday service and to cut back on carbon emissions at home. And they've sent pamphlets to every Anglican parish that say caring for the earth is their Christian duty. But it's one bishop's fiery version of the green gospel that's captured England's attention. Officially, he's the Right Reverend and Right Honorable Richard Chartres, Bishop of London, the third most senior member of the Church of England. But now he's better known as the Green Bishop. The Green Bishop shocked Londoners by announcing that wasting energy is a sin. He condemned using gas-guzzling cars and excess plane travel as selfish and unchristian. The London press told him to practice what he preached and the bishop took the scolding seriously. He's now halfway through a year-long flying fast that's forced him to turn down conference invitations all over the world. The bishop is also limiting his car use. He still uses his chauffeured vehicle for the days he wears full regalia. But on other days, the green bishop rides the London underground. That's this week's cool fix for a hot planet. I'm Amy Fish. Everything in nature has its place. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. We can thank Swedish biologist Carl Linnaeus for the organization of our naming system. But now, 300 years after the birth of Linnaeus, new tools in DNA analysis are shaking up the tree of life. Things we thought were on one branch seem to fit better on another. And moving them gets a bit messy when a naming system is hierarchical. So, some scientists think it's time for an update of the Linnaean system of nomenclature. Living on Earth's Ian Gray has our story. When I first heard someone was thinking of changing the way everything in nature is named, 
I thought the world would collapse into a fiery ball of chaos. The first person I thought of was my seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Euchre. So do you remember when we learned about the Tree of Life? Uh-huh. You'd use mnemonics. Like if we were doing, like we taught Kingdom of Family Class, Order, Family, Genus, Species. Instead of learning that, you learn some little tricky sentence that would go with it, such as King Philip. There's something about fried, fried green spinach. Yeah, the one that I, I really remember is just that King Philip came over for green spinach. Yeah, that was one. And the weirder it got, the easier it was for you guys to remember. Anyway, this whole King Philip thing was a total revelation for me. I mean, you got the whole structure of life in a single sentence. But how did we get that structure in the first place? Linnaeus was born in 1707. At that time, the botanists who were working in Europe all communicated in Latin. That's Fred Berry botanist with the Missouri Botanical Garden and a Linnaean nut. And at the time, the name for a species would have been a genus name plus a descriptive phrase. I can give you an example of one if you'd like. Sure, why don't you... Uh... Ian, you got to get out of the studio. We have an editorial meeting now. Um, can't you see I'm in the middle of an interview? Yeah, sorry, too bad. Got to get out. We got to go. <laughs> okay, uh, God, I'm sorry about this. Hey, Gurgi? Yes? Can you fill in here for a second? We were just about to hear from Dr. Barry how confusing animal and plant names were before Linnaeus came along. No problem. I'll take over. Well, if you look at um, bananas. Oh, um, bananas! The correct scientific Latin name for a banana today is Musa paradisica. Okay. Vauhine from the, the, uh, the 16th century called it Ficus indica fructo racimo folio oblongo. Oh. Linnaeus originally called it Musa Cliffordiana, Uh but then changes his mind and called it Musa Racimo Simplissimo. Uh, Linnaeus! And Musa Spadacy Nutante. Uh, Okay, Gargi, sorry about that. Okay, I'm back. Well, here's how Linnaeus fixed this taxonomic tangle. When he was putting together his famous book on plants, he scribbled in the margins a single Latin noun to help him remember each species. When his book published, people realized these margin notes were easier to remember than the actual species' names. And it caught on very quickly. I mean, within two years, people were publishing using this system, using a binomial system. So Linnaeus, almost by accident, made it easy for people to talk to each other about how species are related. And now that system is, well, law. There are rules for how you name animals, and these rules are all written down in a nice red book. That's Paul Eagleton. I work at the Natural History Museum in London, and I'm a specialist on termites. And he's a fan of this red book called The International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. It governs how groups of organisms are named. But Eagleton's crew recently caused a stir with a discovery about termites. Well, for a long time, it's been known that their closest relatives are praying mantises and cockroaches. But it turns out that as more information has come in, especially as we've started to use DNA in these analyses, we've now begun to realise that termites are nested within cockroaches, that they are actually social cockroaches. Turns out this is something of a bummer for the termites. To go from an order to a family is a considerable demotion for a group. But it gets worse for the termites. According to the Red Book, since termites are no longer at the order level of the tree, they have to lose their order level name, Isoptera. The code works like this. All order-level names end with the suffix A. Hymenoptera, the ants, Coleoptera, the beetles, Blatodia, the cockroaches, etc. 
family-level names end with D-A-E, or D. So, for the newly demoted termites... What they become is, instead of being uh, the isoptera, they become the termitidae, which is the, the correct form of the name if you're going to treat them as a family. Discoveries like this cause a cascade of name changes that hinder the process of keeping the tree up to date. But Michael Donahue, a botanist and the curator of the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale University, says it doesn't have to be that way. To deal with this cascade problem, he and a group of scientists are developing something they call the phylocode. In my view, the idea is not to have to assign a rank at, at any you know, for anything, right? So, for, for anything. Right, right, exactly. No Just get rid of those things. They're not necessary. If Donahue could have his way, people would no longer talk about species and larger groups of organisms by referring to them as an order or a family or any of that. So the cat family, so to speak, is really not equivalent to the uh, sunflower family in any normal way. We start to communicate as though it means something, but it really doesn't mean anything at all. So there's not the same number of species. There's not this, they're not the same age. They don't have the same ecological breadth or something. So there's no particular way in which something we call a family is actually equivalent to another family. And so in the case of termites... Under the phylocode way of thinking about it, you keep the name Isoptera for the termites. You know, termite is a termite, Isoptera, you know, they're the same. We haven't changed our knowledge of that. The only thing that's changed is our knowledge of how they're related to other cockroaches and their relatives and and things like that. Donahue would simply name the new part of the tree where termites branch off from their wood-boring cockroach brethren. In other words, the phylocode would allow us to create more branches to keep up with our discoveries of new relationships. But scientists like Eagleton from the Natural History Museum of London think the phylocode would require too much of an overhaul. Well, especially working in the kind of institution that I work in, which has an enormous amount of information classified and database using that system, to suddenly change the system would, would be a disaster for us. Getting rid of ranks would change how textbooks are written, articles are published, and how laws about species get drafted. Other opponents, like taxonomist Kurt Pickett from the University of Vermont, argue that even if the phylocode was a good idea, its timing is not. We are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis in this world, and just now is not the time to institute some new scheme that is going to hurl us into taxonomic and nomenclatural uh, confusion. Despite dire predictions, Donahue and others are forging ahead. They'll publish their code next year. Uh, I feel like... There's never a good time for, for this kind of stuff in a way. So, you know, to me, it's like, why should it be set in stone? You know, why shouldn't this be something that changes? Just like everything else in science. It seems like it's been lucky that it's lasted 300 years. That's longer than most things last, right, in science? Science applied to its own tradition or needless chaos? For Living on Earth, I'm Ian Gray. Five years ago, John Katz left behind his life as a mystery writer in suburban New Jersey and took to the hills of upstate New York to buy a farm. His growing menagerie of dogs and farm animals and sometimes rocky transition to rural life has provided him with plenty of material to continue writing. John Katz's latest book is called Dog Days, Dispatches from Bedlam Farm. Hello, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. So how does a 
guy from Jersey wind up on a farm? A good question. My wife also asks this quite often. <laughs> and I'm working, on, I'm working on that. You know, it was never my dream to have a farm. I'm not sure I ever really set foot on a farm other than to buy some corn in my life. Um, I was driving past this place and looked up this hill and saw this sprawling old farmhouse, Civil War farmhouse, with four collapsing barns on a beautiful hill. And I just wanted it. And I felt, well, you know, being in middle age does not mean to me that I have to stop learning and growing and changing. So I think it's neat to pursue a dream at that point in life when, when you're in danger of kind of closing up a bit, shutting down a bit, getting rusty, to be thrown into this world of new and very enthralling experience. It's been good for me as a writer. I think it's been good for me as a human, and I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for it. Now, your new book is called Dog Days. Does this just mean summer, John? Well, it means summer. It means a bunch of things. But I, I discovered in researching the book, it was a specific period of time, July 3rd through August 11th, that the Romans called the dog days, the days of great heat, because Sirius, the dog star, rises with the sun during those days. And the Romans blamed those two stars for the warmth. Well, when I learned this, I took my dogs up to the top of the hill behind the farm and, and sat there at four in the morning and waited for Sirius to come up. I wanted to check this out, being a former journalist. And it's true. This quite beautiful bright star pops up with the sun. So it's become a tradition on the farm now, uh, several times during the dog days, which also to me are a state of mind, kind of a time where even in America we slow down, take a breath. To me, it was about reconnecting with nature, which is sort of what had happened to me on the farm, reconnecting with animals, reconnecting with the animal parts of me. The term kind of fleshed out for me. I'm looking at the cover of, of your new book, Dog Days, Dispatches from Bedlam Farm. And who am I looking at on your cover? That is Izzy, who's lying right at my feet as we speak. And uh, he's my, uh, my media dog. He accompanies me on the book tour. Uh, he came from a farm in, nearby. People bought the farm and left him and another border collie pretty much on their own for four or five years. And so uh, he came to me, of course, to train and to find a new home, naturally. And he's still here, naturally, as is the other dog. <laughs> so th thus it goes, you know, it's like the motto of the farm should be one thing leads to another, which is how I have four donkeys, two steers, a cow, a rooster, and a bunch of sheep, and tomorrow, two goats. Okay. Now, <laughs> I want to ask you about your other border collie, Rose. And tell me a story about her when you brought a new ram back to the farm. Well, Rose is my hero. Rose is a four-year-old border collie. She is really the farm manager is the best way I can describe her. And Rose is waiting for the ram. And usually they're pretty belligerent. They can button and bump into people. Um, and the case of last year's ram, uh, I believe his name Rumsfield, uh, he came in and, and everybody warned me to be careful around him. And Rose is eyeing him carefully. I let him in and he struts around. He kind of unnerves the ewes and, and glowers at everybody and butts towards me. And then I let Rose in. She marches up the hill with her head to the ground, giving him the eye, and he rushed out to challenge her, at which point she circled around him and came up behind him and attached herself to his private parts and hung on. And I heard this piercing scream, and he, he ran around for a couple of minutes, and then she ran around and was waiting for him on the other side and nipped at his nose and spun him around in circles. And then he eventually ran into the center of the flock of, of ewes and hid. So much for the tough guy on the block. So huh? much for the tough guy. So you call your place Bedlam Farm, and it certainly sounds like it. I mean, you have all kinds of animals there. And then you have a steer named Elvis. 
Elvis was a little more complicated story because a, a dairy farmer came to my farm one day and he said he had a problem. First time in 45 years that he had a steer, he could not send to market. He said, and he was looking very uncomfortable because, you know, farmers don't usually have trouble doing that. He called a brownie at the time. He said, I have this guy named Brownie. He just doesn't want to get on the truck. I feel like he knows me. He follows me around. He puts his head on my shoulder. He's staring at me all the time. I just can't put him on the truck. Because I realized that, of course, a farmer can't really keep a steer as a pet. That would look bad. And giving him away for free would be even worse. So he has to find a big enough idiot to take him and feed him for years, which he thought he had found in me, and which he did. I, I bought him for 500 bucks. How sociable is this steer named Elvis? He is very sociable. He comes up and uh, puts his head on my shoulder. He likes to kiss me. Uh, he eats my hat. He could be a little drooly. You have not been kissed until you have been kissed by Elvis. Um, Elvis reminds me a bit of Shrek. You know what I mean? He's very lovable and very big, and people tend to run when they see him. <laughs> He's, he is sweet. How can I tell you? I never thought I would know a steer. I never thought I would love a steer. But I go up in the morning with him, and we sit, and we stare out at the green hills of Vermont. And we both, he has this great contemplative quality. Um, uh, he can sit for hours and do nothing in particular with great enthusiasm. So I'm very fond of him. So, John Katz, you've been doing this now. This is year five? Yes, it's fifth year. So you're in, in this for the long haul? Yes, I, absolutely. I, I feel... Um, there's a physical component to running a farm. You know, I've had my troubles there. I had um, frostbite, and I have a lot of back trouble. I've fallen down many times. The ice is brutal. Um, it's a lot of lifting, and there, there does come a point, I'm sure, where you have to kind of be realistic about it and say you can't do it anymore. But I don't feel even close to that point. I've gotten some really good help, and I see the farm as just a very, very positive, beautiful experience for me. I, I just there's 20 more books I want to write. So I just feel I've come home. I don't feel I'm in a strange place. I'm feeling I'm in a place where I belong. I couldn't explain why. That's true, but it is. John Katz's newest book is called Dog Days, Dispatches from Bedlam Farm. Thanks so much, John. Thank you very much. On the next Living on Earth, a river has always run through the Amazon rainforest, and since 1959, so has a road, bringing settlers, death, and destruction to the indigenous population. The first contact, they shook hands, and the same evening, they were all sick. So they were like 900 people. They went out to 200. 700 people died. Life and death in the Amazon rainforest, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week dry and up high in the New Mexican desert. In the early dawn, gusts of wind blow across the open landscape as ravens, western meadowlarks, and mockingbirds sing. Ruth Happel recorded this desert serenade for the wildsanctuary.com soundscape series. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Aaron Reed engineered this week's program. Allison Lirish Dean composed our theme. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow, on the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.